This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca. This river of life, what would it show? A river flow from the north to the south, from the east to the west, from the source to the mouth, past all of the things. Welcome to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. I'm your host, Timmy G, providing your weekly dose of insight and inspiration for mental and emotional well-being. Are you ready for your weekly brain bath? Let's go. Mental health news from around the globe. And this from the Globe and Mail, how to ensure mental health support in the workplace is accessible. How committed is your organization to reducing mental health injuries or mental health issues in your workplace? Most of us, without realizing it, will answer this question based on our degree of awareness and personal experience with our organization's policies, procedures, and programming, which have been developed and implemented to prevent and protect the workforce from mental health injuries, such as exposure to bullies, for example, and work-related factors, such as our workloads, that can negatively impact an employee's mental health. Organizations, as well as their commitment to preventing mental injuries and mental health issues, can be classified as small, medium, or large. But an organization's size doesn't determine its commitment. What does determine its commitment is its level of readiness and its senior leadership's understanding of the business case as to why making this investment is good for business. This includes cost saving and increases in productivity and workforce sustainability. Often decision makers need more reason to act than just it's the right thing to do. Dollars and cents do matter starting to notice in organizations that have stepped up and made this investment that some are experiencing challenges getting most of their workforce fully engaged. Some of the reasons why people aren't aware of policy. It often takes staff, management, several rounds of raising awareness of different policies to make employees aware that there are certain Programs in place that can help with their mental health and listing these policies in a place that is easy to see and easy to access. Through one-on-one interviews with 10 to 15 employees randomly selected or with a focus group, it's a good idea to explore what each policy, procedure, and program means to them, where they can find it, why the organization is doing it, and the value it poses to the employee themselves. Uh, Number three, listen closely to ascertain how accessible each is to them. Exploring accessibility through the above lens can help to uncover employees' engagement and concern with respect to current policies, programs, and procedures to reduce mental injuries and mental health issues. Employers must understand that having policies, procedures, and programs in place, that's a lot of P's, doesn't necessarily mean that most employees understand or are accessing them. Also, not every employee at this, uh, is at the same level and ready to engage in access programs. The workforce can be put into three buckets. Green, motivated to engage. Yellow, interested but have some perceived barrier preventing them from fully engaging. And red, not buying in, don't believe or trust or are distracted. Tips for facilitating accessibility for your mental health programs and policies in the workplace. Number one, never assume. Expect that it will always take a minimum of three separate communications 
and follow-up from employees and frontline leaders for most of the workforce to become aware of any new concept or initiative with respect to what it is, how it can be accessed, and the expectations for when employees are permitted to access it. Number two, expect resistance. Because not everyone is at the same level of readiness, not every idea will be of interest or anticipated. Some employees may even push back. For accessibility, it's important to be clear on what rules are not negotiable and that all employees are accountable regardless of their interest. As well, make it clear for all that what is optional and why it's being offered with respect to value and the benefit for both the employee and the employer. Number three, build an accessibility map. This provides a visual overview of all the organizational policies, procedures, and programs for mental health, where each fits in the following three categories and where they can be found. Number one, primary prevention. The objective, obviously, is to prevent harm. That might involve an anti-stigma campaign. Number two, secondary prevention. The objective is to support people when a risk is identified to get information or skills to reduce their risk level, such as providing coping skills training to employees who are struggling to cope. Three, tertiary prevention. Objective is to provide support, such as access to treatment for depression through an EAP program or something of that sort. Monitoring access. By using Google Analytics, you can flag different URLs to track and monitor what policies, procedures, and programs are being successfully accessed. This can be an early indicator as to what future results can be expected. That from Bill Howitt, Chief Research and Development Officer of Workforce Productivity at Morneau Chappelle. You are listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web at cfrc.ca. Let's get personal. Our talk feature interview. to our feature interview and I will just mention that there is a short portion of this interview that is it's it's slightly graphic but it's powerful and if you're just not feeling in the space for hearing something that's maybe a little bit graphic today um, or if there's kids in the room maybe you want to usher them to another room just you might not want to have to have an awkward conversation later anyway this interview is with Natalie Harris She's an author, she's a former paramedic, and she has a fascinating story, but a very deep and uh, trying story as well. Today I'm pleased to welcome Natalie Harris. Natalie has a book that she's written called Save My Life School, A First Responder's Mental Health Journey. That book came out in January of 2017 this year, and she also has a podcast called Brainstorm. Natalie, welcome to talk. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So can you take us back in time and give us an indication, kind of a window into your upbringing? Into my upbringing? Well, I'm the oldest of five kids, and my youngest part of childhood was good, but, um, you know, my mom stayed home, and my dad drove a truck, so he was away a lot. And um, as my parents got older and then the 1980s hit and the market crashed, we uh, lost our home, and then that's kind of spiraled us into a lot of financial difficulties and led my parents into alcoholism. So through my teenage years, uh, my adolescent years, I remember alcohol being a pretty big um, part of my life back then. Um, So there was like some verbal um, and some physical abuse that we grew up with mostly myself and my my um, brother, who's only a year younger than me. We went through that, but um, the biggest thing uh, that changed, altered my life back then, was when I was 18 years old. I I got pregnant while I was in high school, and my mom was very 
very hardcore Catholic and it wasn't something that you were to do. And she sent me away to a school for unwed mothers and um, it actually exists to this day, I believe, in Scarborough. And I was petrified and I just had no idea what was really going on. So we lost touch with the father and I just sort of lived under an iron fist for many years with my mom and um, a year later when Caroline my daughter was one year old so I finally finished high school and I had a baby shower in my English class and went to my prom six months pregnant so that was something significant in my past I think Um, and my mom had a ruptured brain aneurysm when my daughter was one. So just when I was really getting to the point of wanting to find her father and reconcile, um, it, my mom had a lot of cognitive difficulties, physical like speech difficulties. And my youngest brother was four, my daughter was one. And that led me to um, really putting my life on the back burner and having to take care of her and my siblings because my dad was away driving a truck a lot. So. So that was up until I was about 21 years old. And the good thing, I guess you can say, from um, something that is tragedy, um, my mom had seizures all the time. And these seizures, we would have to call 911. So I called 911 and saw paramedics all the time. And I thought I was just so drawn to their compassion that they had for my family, not even just for my mom. They would take care of my mom and do what they needed to do with her, but they were always looking after my younger siblings. And I thought, this is a world that I could be a part of. I think I really could be a paramedic. So that drew me to going to college and excelling in college and becoming a paramedic myself. So that's kind of the very short version of my my childhood up into my early adulthood. <laughs> That's very, very um, interesting. Now, I'm, I'm curious about when you were growing up and, and, you know, after your family lost the home and, and alcoholism kind of crept in, at, at that age, did you, did you sense that their drinking habits were not normal or was it just normal because that was, you had no frame of reference? That's a great question. At first, I didn't have a frame of reference, but then violence started to be part of um, the days when drinking was really excessive. So I would get, you know, really afraid and hate when friends or relatives would come over because it would just turn into not a party. It was just chaos. And I never really felt like I could be feel at peace at home. So um, into my later teenage years i definitely knew that there were there were problems with their drinking big problems okay and at what age did you begin working as a paramedic i was 23 when i graduated 23 pretty young yeah so you feel called to that through the people you're meeting you see their compassion you go to school you you graduate you're working as a paramedic and then at what point did that work start to take its toll on you? Well, at first, I just loved being a paramedic, and I still love the profession of paramedicine. It is just something you can't describe unless you've been there. It's a culture all on its own, you know, to be able to impact people's lives on such a tremendous scale is, it's a gift that you know, every single day you're in people's homes and you're helping them and um, at first, when you're young, you're young paramedic, you don't necessarily, or well, for myself, I didn't really necessarily notice the trauma very much because I was very um, geared towards my directives and making sure, I was, you know, performing the protocols that I needed to do. Um, you're kind of more of tunnel vision when you're a new paramedic into your medical directives, and and then you get a little bit more experience and you can stand back more and you're more personalizing the environment that you're in. And I would say, um, you know, five years in, I could definitely sense that calls were affecting me more, especially calls that had anything to do with children. I would have like three days of like basically 
inconsolable crying and the phase would go by and I would just kind of chalk it up to the fact that it was just a horrible call that anyone would cry about so but the thing is with paramedics and first responders we don't know when we're going to see a call like that again it could be tomorrow it could be the next call that you do so the cumulative effects the calls that I did um, really started to build up and then into my seven years about seven year career mark I went back to school to be an advanced care paramedic and then once we started to increase our um, level of care we were able to perform very high skilled uh, higher skills and give different drugs and medications and had a lot more responsibility to help people and it impacted me even more so i could feel a lot of pressure that was on my shoulders to excel in that world when we had fought very hard to get this level of care into our into our county and i was part of the first school uh, the first group of people that went went through school for it so i felt a lot of pressure on my shoulder to really do well and um that's when a lot of my drinking started so i didn't know how to deal with the nerves and the anxiety at home and um we were being called to very serious calls because of the skill level that we had and there was really no downtime because there was very few advanced care paramedics in our county at that time and yeah drinking just became my way of life well a lot of our way of life but i'll just speak for myself and Finally, though, in 2012, I was one of the main paramedics of a double murder call in a travel lodge in my city, and uh, the call came in that it sounded like it was an assault, but when we were taking care of my patient, who had a lot of wounds, we didn't know they, at first they were self-inflicted, we realized that our patient actually had murdered the women that were in the room and it was a gruesome murder and so I was starting an IV on the back in the back of the ambulance while he was being read his rights and charged the two counts homicide and looking into the eyes of someone that I'd never looked into those types of eyes before and what happened was I developed what's called a moral injury and I I've never heard of that before I've been to many different gruesome visually gruesome scenes before but i've never had a patient that could you know consciously harm people to that level and that extent um, both of the ladies were almost decapitated and i it turned my world very dark and definitely progressed my alcoholism and, and ptsd started to rear its ugly head at that time Wow. I mean, I'm listening to this and first, mm -hmm. first that I've heard from it from you, obviously. And, um, I can't even imagine what that would be like. And, uh, I just, um, want to say God bless you for the work Thank that, you. the work that you've done and, and, um, to, to be where you're at today. And, uh, I'm just, I'm impressed. Yeah. You're very, you're very well spoken and and you're Thank a you. very mature, a very mature woman. So I'm I'm grateful to have you on. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So oh, yeah. when you think back over your your alcohol use, um, as before you reached that point where you noticed that it was starting to maybe get more and more out of hand, or more and more regular, or the quantity increased, or what have you. When you think back, was your your alcohol use leading up to that more normal, or or now when you look back, was it even leading up to that? Was it more so than than yeah. than normal, if you will? I looking back now, when I went back to school to be an advanced care paramedic, it it got my drinking got really heavy. It was kind of my coping mechanism for the level of, of stress that came along with the program that we did. And I would go home and have a box of wine, just a drink of wine, and, and passed out in order to go to sleep. And 
So yeah, it was it was bad even before the call at the travel lodge. But then after the travel lodge, um, I knew that I was going to have to testify because I would be a main witness because of what I'd heard um, Mark Dobson, my patient, say, and uh, and it was a very high profile call in our in our city and. We had to do a lot of work with the Crown Attorney to prepare for the the trial. A year went by and the trial got cancelled, so I thought, oh great, this is wonderful, we don't need to go to trial. He got a different lawyer and a whole new year started and we needed to wait two years to do the trial. And then by then I was just much drinking at any moment in any time I could. my relationship was falling apart, my, my nightmares, I would wake my kids up screaming, um, just wake up drenched in sweat, not understanding what the world was anymore, and I just couldn't see the world as a bright place anymore after that call, and it was just not the same thing to be able to accept that a human being could make someone else suffer, so it just turned my world so dark, so... Suicide seemed to be the only way out for me, and and with my PTSD, I started having delusional thinking, and and my mind was com- completely convinced that suicide was the answer for me. So it was a downward spiral with my mental health over those two years before the trial, um, and then when the trial actually came, um, that night after I testified, uh, I overdosed. And that was the first of several overdoses. And what year was that? That was 2014. 14, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, go ahead if you had... No, I was just taking a drink of water. Okay, <laughs> no problem. Yeah. So 2014 and, and the, the years leading up to that are, are difficult. Mm-hmm. And then at what point did you decide that or have the idea that maybe one day you would write a book? Is that something that happened more recently? Mm-hmm. or No, it's a really another great question. So when I overdosed, uh, I was obviously hospitalized, and it was my peers who had picked me up. I was quite sick, and I couldn't fight it anymore. I knew in my heart had spiraled out of control and and my relationship the person I was in the relationship with was just clinging on I mean it was everything it was a tornado effect around me and but I still kept trying to hide I didn't want anyone to see you know I had this perfectionism life that I led because that was my mode of survival was I had to do things perfect to, to know that I would succeed, to know that I could be a good single mom, to know that I would be a good paramedic. And then suddenly I was a sick paramedic and I hated that feeling. And um, I remember sitting one day in my living room, just feeling so embarrassed and horrible that people know that I overdosed and I was watching Clara Hughes on TV for Bell Let's Talk. And she was sitting there sharing about her history of depression, anxiety, and eating disorders. And I, she inspired me beyond belief. I thought, if this woman, a six-time Olympian, can share that she battles with mental illness, then I shouldn't have to feel embarrassed to share that I also... Um, struggle with that so I I spoke to my friends and my one friend suggested she's like Natalie you love to write why don't you start the blog why don't you start doing something like that and I did and I remember that I started a blog on the first day I was I was told to go to an outpatient program at my hospital and it would be an eight-week program and I wrote a quick blog that morning and that was the beginning of an amazing journey that I couldn't have imagined in my life um uh, just thousands of people started following and waiting for blogs every day and reaching out Clara Hughes and started retweeting it and ended up writing a foreword to my book um wow. and then there was more hospitalizations that came along so I had a lot of journal entries that were part of the book and 
to be honest, I never thought it would turn into a book. It wasn't something that I had in my mind, but a friend introduced me to a publisher who was really interested in it, and we clicked right away, and I knew I could work with her, and it flourished into the book that it became. So, yeah. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm very amazed. <laughs> Earlier... A long journey. Earlier, you mentioned the word um, compassion, and mm -hmm. I think it's interesting the angles that you've been able to view compassion in your life, first as mm -hmm. witnessing paramedics coming into um, your home and connecting with yep. them at that level, and then, and then dealing with addiction and, and tr trauma and your own recovery and, and mm -hmm. having to develop a certain level of compassion toward yourself. Yes. Now when you look out on the world and you look out, you know, in terms of anything that you see, how critical is, and I, I guess I'm asking this, this is a very large question, but I'm, I'm asking it from the vantage point of when you think of your mother and her seizures, you think of your own journey, right. you think of a lot of the patients that you've, you've come in contact with, Mm -hmm. and 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 all those different all the fabric of all those stories and how it connects mm -hmm. our world and makes up our world how and even the even the fella that did those heinous things how yeah. how critical is compassion today when you look out on the world through through every lens right. that you look through it's everything it is everything you know through my recovery um Another thing that I started to do was go to a Buddhist center in the city with my sister-in-law, and I knew nothing about Buddhism. And what I learned from it was that they talk about love and compassion and just being virtuous. And I, you know, it's funny, I, I speaking of compassion, it was the topic, the actual topic at one of the Buddhist classes and the wonderful teacher is sharing about how it, it's it's to wish someone happiness and to wish them well, and that that it can't hurt you, that compassion can't hurt you. And I took my hands in the air because I'm still a bitter paramedic at this time, and I'm like, I have compassion fatigue, you know, compassion totally hurt me. Like, how are you saying this? And she so kindly looked at me and said, compassion never hurts you, attachment did. And I just put my hand down <laughs> and I thought, I've never looked at it that way because what happened is there isn't compassion. There is no way for compassion to harm you. If we become attached to the outcomes of our compassion, that's when we become fatigued. I had never thought of that. I had never been taught that before as well. So and and then with the, my blog and people reaching out and wanting peer support all the time, and it became very uh, overwhelming to try to know the answers and what to say. That lesson taught me to know I can share my compassion to whomever is reaching out to me, and I can provide information that I know works for me. But that's it, and the rest is out of my hands and it's in the universe's hands and I can't be attached to the outcome of my compassion. And that really allowed me to feel compassion again and to see that it doesn't need to hurt anymore. You know, everyone deserves compassion, but we're, we're all steering our own ships. And if, if I have this opportunity through experience to say, you know, maybe steer the ship a little bit to the left, like that might be a good idea. And whether they do or whether they don't is out of my control. But I still have a wish in my heart that that's what they'll do because I think it will help them. And like compassion and love is what fuels me every day and what keeps me out of the darkness that still tries to pull me in because I still battle with depression I still battle with anxiety and symptoms with PTSD but love and compassion are the true things in life and you know even when we're talking about Mark Dobson the patient my patient um, 
it took me a long time, but I've forgiven him, and I, for, I forgive the trauma that he inflicted on me, and I see him as a sick person who really needs compassion. And if anyone needs compassion in this world, it's him. And if anyone in this world needs love, it's him. And I'm sure there's multiple people out that will disagree with me. And that's not, to say, that's not to say that I accept what his actions were. That's not to say that what he did was right. Those are two separate conversations entirely. As him as a human being, I don't know what his past is. I don't know what led him to that day at the travel lodge, but he's a, he's a soul that is, that is very sick. And if I can send a little bit of compassion to him, that's also helping me to heal. So compassion, that question, is, 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 is profound to me, for sure. Wow, that's beautiful and very powerful. And there's a lot of wisdom in, in a lot of things that you've shared. Um, I, I really want to thank you so much for your willingness and your openness and your, your honesty. And um, I really see you as a light in the world. And I just encourage you to keep, yeah. to keep doing the work that you're doing and and to keep finding courage. And uh, yeah, I want to thank you very much today. Thanks. It's really my pleasure. Maybe thank we'll, you. Maybe we'll have you again on the show in the future. That would be great. I'd love, I'd love that. Okay. Thank you so much, Natalie. All right. Now, talk oh, to you later. Bef before, I, before we wrap up, if somebody mm -hmm. wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? find me at paramedicnat1 on Instagram and Twitter and I have a website which is also my blog paramedicnatsmentalhealthjourney.com so those are usually the best ways to and you can find my podcast brainstorm through my blog as well and on SoundCloud so yeah great so thank you so right. much great okay it was nice chatting with you we'll talk to you again okay bye-bye bye, -bye. bye. CFRC hit the airwaves in 1922. Do you know what the world was like in 1922? Well, Gandhi was sentenced to six years in prison for sedition, but he only served two of them. In 2017, CFRC Radio celebrates 95 years of creating campus community radio in Kingston, Ontario. It's now time for Music and the Mind, where we spotlight addiction, recovery, and the search for the natural high. CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. Powerful, powerful interview. Natalie Harris. I get uh, emotional hearing her words something very powerful happening there we are going to move into music in the mind now and we're continuing a feature that we started last week that looks at musicians artists who have spoken out publicly about their mental health challenges last week we did bruce springsteen we did who else did we do i'm not going to test my memory today we're doing adele let's look at that so despite the fact that Adele is an extremely, extremely one of the most successful recording artists in the world, the London-born singer has had a long battle with anxiety. She said, I have anxiety attacks, constant panicking on stage. My heart feels like it's going to explode because I never feel like I'm going to deliver, ever. She told Q Magazine before explaining that she couldn't envision herself playing a festival, or an arena show. The thought of an audience that big frightens the life out of me. She said, I'd hate to book a festival and have a freaking anxiety attack and then not go on stage. Despite this, Adele told Rolling Stone that she was inspired after meeting Beyonce to create an alter ego to help her deal with her anxiety. And according to the Daily Star, Singer also hired a therapist for some of her most recent touring. 
just to help her manage her anxiety attacks and panic attacks. So we are going to play a song by Adele. This is called Turning Table. CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. That was Adele with Turning Tables. We are now going to look at Joy Division. Ian Curtis. So he had depression. And he co-founded Joy Division in 1976. That is the year of my birth, actually. And as the band steadily gained notoriety, Curtis sank deeper and deeper into depression. 
is dissolving marriage and a diagnosis of epilepsy only made matters worse. As the band prepared for their first North American tour, Ian Curtis commits suicide. He died far too young, but he left behind a legacy that is still uh, remembered today. So we are going to play a song by Joy Division called Love Will Tear Us Apart. You are listening to CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. Joy Division with Love Will Tear Us Apart. CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. That was Joy Division with Love Will Tear Us Apart. We're now going to look at Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga has spent the entirety of her career being very open about all of her different life experiences. It's part of why she has a very devoted and large fan base. The singer has spoken out about her mental health on many different occasions. Talking to Billboard, she said she still has daily struggles. I've uh, suffered through depression and anxiety my entire life, she told Billboard. I just want these kids to know that 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 depth that they feel as human beings is normal. More recently, the singer explained how she's been on 
medication as part of her treatment. Gaga says, I take medication every day for mental illness and depression, and I don't feel bad about it. She said after a concert in, uh, or during a concert in 2014. Depression doesn't all, always, um, doesn't take away your talents. It just makes them harder to find. But I always find it. I learned that my sadness never destroyed what was great about me. You just have to go back to that greatness. Find that one little light that's left. I'm lucky I found one little glimmer stored away. That's Lady Gaga on her battles with depression. We are going to listen to a song now from Lady Gaga called Till It Happens to You. Tell me it gets better, it gets better in time. You say I pull myself together, pull it together, you'll be fine. Tell me what the hell do you know? What do you know? Tell me how the hell.
CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. You are listening to Talk. We're now going to look at our last music feature for today, Canadian boy Justin Bieber. Now, I know Justin has a lot of mixed reviews in the world. He has a lot of fans around the globe. He is a megastar for sure. And he's done, I mean, anytime you see something that's happening in the media, we are all prone to forming opinions about who should and who shouldn't be doing what and at what time. But I think Natalie's story should give us pause for when we see people doing things that maybe we don't agree with or we think are hurtful or silly or whatever the whatever fill in the blank the compassion for not fully understanding a person's story i mean if she can find compassion in her heart for somebody who has committed a double homicide and understand that that person is a deeply deeply hurting and sick person and in her words a sick soul then that inspires me i hope inspires you to look on my fellow man my fellow woman kids down the street whoever through a different lens and to just take a step back before i'm too so quick to cast judgment and just think there's probably a lot about that person that i don't actually know so Justin Bieber, he's been in the last 18 months very outspoken about a number of different mental health challenges he's been going through. Uh, ahead of the re release of his album Purpose, the star said that he struggled with the pressures of fame. He just wants people to know that he's human. He says, I'm struggling just to get through the days. I think a lot of people are. You get lonely, you know, you're on the road, people see the glam, the amazing stuff, but they don't know the other side of it. This life can rip you apart. This year, the Love Yourself singer made the decision that he could no longer partake in fan meet-and-greets. Bieber says, I'm going to be canceling my meet-and-greets. I enjoy meeting such incredible people, but I end up feeling so drained and filled with so much of other people's spiritual energy that I end up drained and unhappy. He says, I want to make people smile and happy, but not at my expense. And I always leave feeling mentally and emotionally exhausted to the point of depression pressure of meeting people's expectations of what I'm supposed to be is so much for me to handle and a lot on my shoulders. I never want to disappoint, but I feel I would rather give you my fans the show and my albums as promised. I can't tell you how sorry I am and wish it wasn't so hard on me. I want to stay in, the in a healthy mindset I'm in in order to give you the best show that you've ever seen. So, I mean, he has a tremendous commitment to his fans, and that's a great example of a public person, a megastar, setting healthy boundaries in his life uh, in a really a really good way. So we are going to listen to an older song by Justin Bieber. I remember when this came out, I watched the movie. I was inspired by that movie, that first movie. I mean, I'm a 41-year-old man today. When I watched that movie, it was not that long ago. And I remember just thinking, regardless of whether you like the music or not, or what, what have you, what your favorite genre is, just looking at the incredible rise of what he was doing and sitting downtown Stratford with a guitar at a very young age playing on the streets. And I mean, it's very, very inspiring. So we need to support everybody, including our Canadian boy, Justin Bieber. So here is somebody to love. Somebody 
fun giving you all this attention. So baby, listen. CFRC 101.9 FM and streaming on the web at CFRC.ca. That was Justin Bieber with Somebody to Love. Earlier in the show, I spoke with Natalie Harris, former paramedic and author who highlights her journey about PTSD and different mental health and addiction-related issues. Her second annual fundraising event is coming up Saturday, January 27th. Natalie actually lives in Barrie. So if you're in the Barrie area and you want to check out her fundraiser, you can go to uh, Paramedic Nat's Mental Health Journey to contact her about that event. It starts at 7 p.m. Michael Landsberg will be speaking. And Sean McCann, formerly from uh, Great Big C, will be uh, speaking and performing as well. Quite an event. So next week, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to do a book review. Picked up a book recently called Stand Firm, Resisting the Self-Improvement Craze by Svend Brinkman. Now, I've been a guy who, for most of my life, since I left university in my early 20s, back in whenever that was, you know, I've read a lot of self-help books, been really on that kick for a long time. Nothing wrong with wanting to improve yourself. But the take that Mr. Brinkman provides is very interesting. And if you're somebody who's dealing with mental health issues, or even if you're not, this continuous spoken, unspoken pressure by society, colleagues, coworkers, friends, whatever, ourselves, the pressure that we put on ourselves, this pressure to be continuously and constantly striving to improve and be better. And I think that a lot of people are under a lot of pressure these days to keep up with that. And I have to ask the question now that I've, I'm almost finished this book, why? why? Why have we put so much pressure on ourselves to be the biggest, the baddest, the greatest, and the best in the shortest amount of time? It feels and it seems terribly overwhelming. And I made it a commitment to myself this year, 2018, just to slow down a little bit. This has been another edition of Talk with Timmy G on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. If you have any questions or feedback or would like to be featured on the show, please email me at info at timothydgauthier.com. That's info at timothydgauthier.com. Every Thursday from 7 to 8.30, I facilitate a free drop-in group called MindWell. It's a support group for anybody dealing with burnout, stress, anxiety. Again, that's every Thursday from 7 to 8.30. Address 1111 Taylor Kidd Boulevard at St. Paul the Apostle. 
This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.